Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, and we're going to be talking about a musical institution that actually looks like it's in pretty good shape compared to the Recording Academy in that it's not actively on fire. I'm sure we'll get to the Grammys mess in a future episode in the relatively near future, but for now, we're actually going to talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is going through its own growing pains, but it has a pretty solid class of 2020, which is Nine Inch Nails, Depeche Mode, the Doobie Brothers, Whitney Houston, the Notorious B.I.G., and T-Rex. And Andy Green spoke to some of them, some of the ones who were alive, and we're going to play some of his interviews, and we're going to talk about the acts themselves and the state of the Hall of Fame and all of that. But I thought we'd start with Andy's conversation with Mr. Trent Reznor, who is in a very good mood. Andy, I know you'd never spoke to him before, and you weren't sure what to expect from Trent Reznor. Yeah, I mean, I had never spoken to Trent, as you say, and I was expecting a sort of more gloom and doom kind of guy. But he was honestly happier about it than members of the Doobie Brothers. He was thrilled. Yeah, you've done a lot of these interviews over the years. You're often the first person to talk to these people about their inductions. Yes. Most people are thrilled. Some people are just like kind of eh about it. Yeah, if they're British, it's often (laughs) eh. There's a disconnect with our British musician friends. They're not totally as aware of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as perhaps they should be and for them it's just like getting another Q award or whatever or even less than that yeah that their culture is they have the Brit Awards and they have like the Prog Rock Awards they have all these things there and the Hall of Fame is a very American thing but Trent Reznor very excited so let's hear a bit of Trent Reznor and Andy Green right after Trent found out that Nine Inch Nails which in this case so far it just means Trent Reznor as far as the Hall of Fame is concerned got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame so congratulations on the big news Oh, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> Pretty freaked out. It's, that's, I'm, I'm quite in shock, actually. So, like, why are you in shock? No, I mean, it's... Uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm actually quite surprised. You know, I, I, when I look back at how Nine Inch Nails is received, you know, it always feels like we kind of fall between the cracks or we're in a... You know, we're not in this category and we're not that thing. And I, just, I don't know if it's defense mechanisms or not, but I just assume that it would be... We'd stay in that category so I'm, I'm i'm pleasantly surprised to see us get acknowledged you know feels pretty yeah and this was your third ballot so by this point i imagine that you gotten used to still being on the ballot but not making it in used to failing yeah <laughs> not failing. i'm kind of relieved because i assumed for the rest of my life every year i'd have a uh you know, a new uh disappointment reminding <laughs> me you're not good enough and how does this compare to to your Oscar win? Well, I haven't really had time to deeply think it through. Mm-hmm. The Oscar win was a surreal experience because it truly came on, you know, it wasn't anything that we'd been, I'd ever even thought about. You know, we, we were just immersed in working on something that we really believed in and felt we did a good job at. Mm-hmm. And to see that, wow, to people that know what they're doing, they think we did a pretty good job. Yeah. That felt legit, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you wake up the next day, and you're still the same asshole you were before you got it. You know, but right. It felt significant. You know, it felt it felt nice. Yeah, and this ceremony. Mm-hmm. I had kind of thought the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concept seemed absurd, and in some ways, surely it is. 
you know, mm. trying to quantify something as kind of broad as that. Yeah. And inevitably have a competitive element to it and a kind of gamification of it is hard to rationalize. But, you know, being there last year to induct the cure, you know, it felt it felt really cool being there. It felt in that room. It felt I'm sitting with the guys from Radiohead and watching watching Brian Ferry play. Mm-hmm. And it was just nice to see, you know, a bunch of people celebrating music, you know, as the primary thing. But it felt, it felt legit, you know, it really felt good. So. And it's going to be in Cleveland, which would be extra meaningful because of your past there, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember back when there was talk of a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and there was uh, somewhat of, as I recall, a kind of competition about what city was going to get it. Yeah. I was working in a music shop that sold keyboards and drum machines, and there was some effort on part of the store to kind of drum up. I thought it would be a cool thing because the city needed something, you know, other than sports to kind of focus it. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy to think all these years later that, wow, against all odds, I wound up as a part of that. Yeah, and you began your first album there, right? I mean, so it's going full circle. Yeah, I, I grew up about an hour and a half away from Cleveland and got sucked into Cleveland once I dropped out of school. And there was the, you know, to me, a pretty vibrant music scene happening there. Yeah. Certainly compared to Pittsburgh, the other kind of close city at the time. Mm-hmm. And I cut my teeth there, played in some bands, and you know, went through my early 20s. I better do something with my life. <laughs> and had the opportunity to work in a studio there and really focus in on what would become Nine Inch Nails and kind of hone the blueprint and vision of what that what that remains to this day yeah. in Cleveland. So it, uh, it's a it's a pretty cool group this year. I imagine that you like Depeche Mode and T Rex and Biggie, right? I mean, it's a really diverse lineup. Yeah, I, I'm thrilled Depeche finally made it in. Yeah. You know, it's, when it gets weird for me is when you think about okay, who's in, who's out. You know, and you see Bale and Kraftwerk or Todd Rundgren not get in. You know, that, that's when the you know, the hey, what's what's the criteria here? Because those guys, in my opinion, absolutely should fucking be in there. You know, I mean, both of those that I just mentioned have been hugely influential. I don't think I would be me had those guys not existed. You know, so that's where I kind of take a bit with a grain of salt and. I also you know, think uh, about Joy Division and New Order. I mean, they seem like they sure. should be shoo-ins. But, you know, again, when you when you start pulling on the thread, there's, there's lots of things that are kind of, how do you make that all make sense? You know, but yeah. It is what it is. I, I think the weirdest feeling for me at the moment is you know, I've always, regardless of where I am, kind of feel like I don't fit in anywhere. Mm-hmm. There's no serious satellite radio station I can put on that... <laughs> is my type of music, you know, or even plays Nine Inch Nails for that matter. Uh-huh. And I kind of assumed that we'd have that same fate in the judgment of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I'm allowing myself for a limited period of time to feel good about this. Yeah. And you're going to come and perform, right? I'm guessing. Yeah, we're going to do, do it up. Wow. 
No, you wore a tux at the Oscars. I can't picture you in a tux as you're singing March of the Pigs or something. That just, that's the, yeah, it's yeah. Probably, it probably won't happen. Yeah. <laughs> you never know, though, you know? You never know what might happen. Yeah. Are you able to imagine a big all-star jam of you and Night Depeche Mode and some of the other inductees? That's a little fuzzier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see who inducts you. Do you have any ideas about, about how you want to see you do that? Or? Um, no, I'm... Like I said, this is all fresh information, and I just I just had a new baby over the weekend. So. Oh, wow. So, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Lots of action here. Yeah, wow. Those are two huge things in a couple of days. Jeez. Yeah, really, I know. Yeah. I mean, do you see that... Twenty starting off with a bang here. Yeah. I mean, I kind of see this as vindication of the kind of music that you make and Depeche Mode makes, that for so long the Hall of Fame was just guitar band focused. There was such a session with guitar bands and groups that use synthesizers. Yeah, I, I would hope that's the case as well. You know, I think with um, the inclusion of some hip-hop acts, you know, to me it's the, the spirit of rock and roll. You know, and it doesn't that doesn't mean it has to be guitar-based drums. You know, it can be a turntable, it can be a computer, it can be mm-hmm. a synthesizer, sequencer. It's, they're all tools. It's the spirit of expression and, to me, freedom and no limits. Yeah. Expression kind of box is my version of what rock means. And the method of achieving that, you know, that needs to be quantified into it, has to have this instrumentation. So that was Trent Reznor talking to Andy Green and actually doing a very nice summation of his view of what rock and roll is, which... Uh, actually matches pretty nicely with, I think, what the Hall of Fame is trying to do going forward, right, Andy? Yeah, but there's always a certain segment of people that I hear every year on Twitter and Facebook and the radio that are like, Madonna and Janet Jackson are not rock and roll, you know, and it just, it's a very persistent, like, message out of people that can't stand the fact that other kinds of music are considered part of the rock and roll world. Well, that's kind of a, a crux of a problem for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it has to try to serve many masters and try to please a lot of different fans who have very, very different ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly, un- John Sykes is now in charge of it. Um, and he's talked about trying to appeal more to young people, which is a, a very valid goal. At the same time, the most recent that a band can be to be in, or an act can be to be inducted into the Hall of Fame is uh, their first album had to come out 25 years before that date. So you can only be so current. That said, I mean, I'm sure they're going to be making more efforts to have the bands who perform for the, the who induct the bands, the extra performances to make those more in touch with young right. people. Right. And this year is a chance for that because there's so many people that are inducting who are not with us. There could be a huge biggie tribute with all kinds of people. They can honor Whitney Houston. They can honor T-Rex. So Robbie Robertson will be paying tribute to Biggie. Yes. That kind of thing? Yes, exactly. But right, it, it gives them an opportunity to do that stuff. But it's it's a fine line. I mean, they can only get so modern by the very nature of the thing. You know, I think there's a wall that you hit, I think. Yeah, and I was hearing Irving Azoff has been talking about the Hall of Fame because he sits on their board. And he says this year is going to be very different, that they really want to make it for people of all ages. And there's even talk of their first ever host. Wow. That'll be an interesting thing because it's never been the origins of it for 
people who don't realize, and we've done episodes about this before, it started as sort of a private event in a hotel ballroom. Mm-hmm. And so it never was this showbiz sort of thing. So I think that's why there was never any thought of a host, because even as it's gotten bigger and bigger, and they did the live show in Cleveland, and that's become a tradition, and and then at, at arenas in Brooklyn and, and all that, it still is coming from this thing of, oh, it's really just a dinner. Right. You know? And a big change this year also, it's live in HBO for the first time. That's huge. So in all past years, they can have long speeches, they can have long performances, they can have things that didn't work, and they just chop it out. Live, the incentive for it to start <laughs> strong and have a host come out and make jokes and have the speech is super short, have tight performances, have a quick turnaround, it's... It's going to be a huge change. Well, it's funny. Ever since it started being in large venues, I've told people that you're really better off watching it on television unless you're you know, a super fan of someone being inducted because in person it drags sometimes. You know, It's a, the incredible year that Nirvana were inducted and there was that an amazing performance by the remaining members of Nirvana with all those great women singers. That was fantastic. But that was at the end of a night where there were some long speeches. The, the entire E Street Band maybe was not the finest night in the history of the East Street Band. Each member of the East Street Band spoke for about 20 minutes, well, leading to an endless parade of talking in front of an entire arena that was waiting for people to play. So there's there's stuff like that. They're going to have to really tighten the reins this year. Yeah, I mean, I hear every year they have a new plan that one member of a band speaks, and it's brief. It's sort of unfair. We think about it. If they let Chicago just go forever, you'll have horn players talking till four in the morning. I mean, there needs like to be some... The other thing is they need to be careful not to suck out the chances for drama because we once did an entire episode on Rock and Roll Hall of Fame drama and just all those moments of, without kind of exploiting it as a reality show, it's part of what makes the whole thing interesting is you get people on stage who absolutely hate each other and it's their one moment to speak their truths. Yeah, it's the only place that's outside of a courtroom where these people are occasionally (laughs) forced to be in the same place at the same podium. And that might be diminished now. And I hope they let the older acts play. It's not the Doobie Brothers joined by like Post Malone or something. I mean, that would just be <laughs> an abomination. They can't go overboard. Right. It's it's going to be a fine line. And, and that's the thing, right? Ultimately, if you're inducting the Doobie Brothers, you got to just induct the Doobie Brothers. It is what it is, you know? And and I, I know that personally, and we'll talk about the Doobies a little bit, even for me, who wasn't, uh, who was far from a Doobie Brothers super fan, this was an opportunity to learn a little bit more about the band and their story. And it's all interesting. So I don't think you need to mediate that with, yeah, you know, <laughs> with Post Malone or, or, right. or something equally bizarre. But- But what the Grammys does is they always feel that we can't be just old at any moment or people will turn the channel. Well, part of that that is being on commercial television. Yeah. HBO has a lot more room to maneuver, I think, because also they don't have to answer to advertisers who, if, you know, someone tunes out because, God forbid, someone over the age of 35 is seen for more than 10 seconds at a time, that that Gen Z's uh, heads will explode and they'll turn off the TV and go back to TikTok. They're not watching anyway. Yeah. That's right. I just don't want the charm of it to be sucked away in an obsession of youth. It's not what the Hall of Fame is all about. It's not a youthful thing. That's the opposite of the whole freaking idea of it. It's a legitimate concern. There are other concerns. The Hall of Fame has come under a lot of criticism, I think, in in some cases quite justly, for not having enough women in it. Uh, This year is not a great year for, for women being inducted. No, and the biggest point about this is Pat Benatar, who's very high on the fan vote, which is a meaningless thing, but it gets the fans all psyched up. And she's so fantastic, had so many hits. 
and she didn't get in and a lot of people are just livid about it just like what does she have to do to get in yeah it's a it's a tough thing and then i think that's kind of an overwhelming area of complaint and people have said that you know why can't there be a year when it's just an all-woman class and that's a fine idea as well yeah. and at the same time to show how many different sides of criticism they're getting of course there's a thing of like why aren't craft work and uh, i personally would really like them in but more broadly none of the hard rock acts really got in yeah that on the ballot this year was judas priest and Soundgarden and motorhead and they didn't get in I think what happened if you put that many on the ballot that the votes, they get split. I think if it was just Motorhead, maybe, then they could have pulled it off. That's kind of how Deep Purple got in, right? Right. I would think so. Yeah, for sure. Because basically, if you think about who the voting base is, there's probably, you know, there's a fair amount of partisans for hard rock and metal, but not huge. And so if you have four acts, unfortunately, get split up and they cancel each other out. Yeah. And I I think a lot of people are confused. They see T-Rex and in the States, it's just bang a gong, basically. It's one song that's widely known, whereas Judas Priest has like 50 years of being huge. Well, I'd like to to make a case uh, for T-Rex before the show ends because they are a great band. Oh, you know, I love T-Rex. I just think to most people, they don't quite understand what they did. Our colleague Corey Groh pointed out that this is probably the first year where it's majority non-guitar bands, which is really interesting. Yeah, it's four of the six acts are not guitar-based. Uh, which Trent Reznor, he was talking about, and that's a pretty big thing. Because Hall of Fame for so long, they had a basic idea that rock is drum, guitar, bass, and that's what so many of the bands were based in. I mean, just to flip back for a second, part of the problem is that there actually are a huge number of even guitar-based drums acts who still aren't into the Hall of Fame, even as the attention understandably turns to things that are a little more that actually are just newly eligible to get in. So yeah. there is a, a tough thing. They again they have to reach in all directions right. to try to make people happy. It's a constant problem. Do they take in nineties acts that are just eligible? Do they go back to the sixties and seventies and find groups that they skipped over? Do they go to the eighties and find some of these sort of synth pop acts that were totally overlooked? There's so many decades to draw from now, and there's just six slots a year or so. I think they're, if I were in charge, I would do something to try to make up for the fact that inevitably people's attention are going to turn to these acts that are newly eligible and do something to allow like three or four neglected things from the 60s and 70s to get in and expand it a little bit. Otherwise, you're going to have people, I don't think it's fair, there's, there's people who will never get yeah. in from the old days. But I thought you think the 60s are kind of done at this point. If you didn't make it in your first 30 times, that's be done with the 60s. Well, you don't think Graham Parsons should get in? Well, he's in as a member of the Birds, and he's sort of a 70s act too. That was his best stuff was coming out. And, uh, uh, and Tina Turner still isn't in solo and that kind of stuff. Like she's more of an 80s act. You but think that's the 80s. Yeah. She's in with Ike, yeah. but she deserves to be in solo. And Carol King is just egregious. She's only in as a songwriter for her partnership with Jerry Goffin. And I think part of it is this a too narrow idea of what rock and roll is. And I think it's great that it's now being expanded to include a Whitney Houston in the, sort of in the present and things that are newly eligible. But I think it's a matter of looking back and bring in people, yeah, like Carol King, who obviously should be in there. And yeah, is it just sort of flat out sexism that led people to not think in that direction? Sure. And I think the idea of an all women class is, is uh, not a bad idea at all. 
And I, I think that on a sort of a racial diversity level, the Hall of Fame's record is pretty good because, I mean, it would be a, extremely egregious if it wasn't yeah. because when you consider that, like, you know, almost universally the artists who founded this music were black. And so if they neglected that, it would be absolutely reprehensible. But so, you know, it's not all bad, but, you know, it needs to it needs to crack itself up and look in new directions. But it's a weird era for the Hall of Fame, as we've discussed. They're in transition. And yet, <laughs> here we have like kind of the most 70s band of the 70s getting in, which is the Doobie Brothers. And it's interesting. Did they get in in part because they suddenly have powerhouse management who were able to lobby for them a little bit more? Well, when I spoke with Tom Johnston, he basically said it was Irving Azoff that made this happen, uh, which I guess why he sees that. But the board's the board and the voters are voters. You know, he only has so much power. They have a, a more interesting story than you might think if you're not familiar with the Doobie Brothers. They were <laughs> they were this biker band, this hardcore biker band, hardcore for their era, who then became like the hardest touring band on earth with their original vocalist and then hit a wall with him. He had ulcers in his stomach that were bleeding and he was burned out because, as you say, they had so many concerts. So at the peak of their fame at that moment, he walks away. So they're short a singer. So they were in need of a singer, and Steely Dan had just worked with a new this keyboardist. This is Tom Johnston, the yeah, first guy. This is, yeah, this is Tom Johnston. So that Tom's out. They do a couple shows that are, are without Tom, and they were short of voice, and they wanted to add in a keyboard player also. So they hired Michael McDonald who had just worked with Steely Dan, and they viewed him as a keyboardist and background singer. It's funny, he had worked with Steely Dan he'd, as a backup singer. And, you know, if you've ever seen the Asia documentary, they were like torturing him with mm-hmm. all these specific instructions of how to sing backup for Steely Dan. It's the hardest job in the world. But that didn't mean he was super successful. He was living in like a garage somewhere in LA. Yeah, he was totally unknown. He was very happy to have a gig. And they didn't see him as a songwriter, but he quickly, he came to them. He was all sheepish. He goes, guys, I wrote this song. I want to play it for you. And and it was taking it to the streets. (laughs) Then the producer, Tad Templeman, was just like, holy shit. So they record a whole album of his songs, basically. And they go from sort of biker band to yacht rock. The entire sound changed. Yeah. And sort of helped invent what would later be seen as, yeah. as Yacht Rock, because that wasn't, uh, of course, a thing yet. And a couple of years earlier, they hired Jeff Skunk Baxter out of Steely Dan's touring band to join their band. So with Michael and Jeff, it becomes totally different, and they have almost even bigger hits than the Tom Johnson era. A much slicker animal, yeah, and, and very far away from that, that biker band they had been. Right. You talked to Patrick Simmons. Yeah, Tell us about him. He's the one constant member of the band. He's there from day one until right now. And he's a key part of the harmony sound. A big part of the band always has been these three-part harmonies. And Pat is, is a big part of it, but he's also one of their lead singers and writers. He wrote and sang Blackwater, which was a huge, huge That's hit. probably my favorite Doobie Brothers jam, I think. Yeah, it's fantastic. And that was all Pat. And so you talked to him. Let's hear maybe a few minutes of your interview with Patrick Simmons of the Doobie Brothers. You toured with T Rex in 1972, I think, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, but sadly, it's just their drummer left who will be getting in. All the rest of the guys are dead. Um, which drummer now? 
it's like Bill Legend. I think they're just taking in oh. like the lineup that was on like sort of like those albums. Mm-hmm. Like uh, okay, yeah, I I remember him very well. Um, I, I'm surprised everybody else has already passed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's terrible. I thought maybe uh, Mickey Finn might still be around. No, no, he's gone. Uh, yeah, yeah. Those they were good guys, you know. That was like really the first really had a major tour. We we toured with Mother Earth mm-hmm. uh, early on before then, but uh, that was our first you know real national tour that was you know not a sponsored tour. The Mother Earth tour was more sponsored, but uh, mm-hmm. the T Rex tour was just we were the opening act for them and. We were able to to do it just because of the guarantees we got from them. But um, yeah, they were. You know, Mark was such a nice guy in the band. We got real very close with all those guys. Yeah, I just love Mark Boland. He was a genius. It's you know, it's so tragic. He was uh, just a really nice guy. We got to, you know, it's funny because he was so such a flamboyant. Uh, guy, when we first got out there, it was sort of like, you know, we were these street kids from San Jose, and here's this guy in all these roughly clothes, and <laughs> makeup, and, you know, giant platform shoes, and everything. We're like, going, whoa, what planet did this guy come from? Wow. And, and uh, it was, uh, he taught us a lot about, you know, showmanship, and and class, and, and uh, after we got to know him, it was like, he's just a normal person, you know? He just uh, is a super showman and knew, knew how to, knew what he was doing, you know? Right. Now, there tends to be a big all-star jam at the end of the night, but I can't imagine that Nine Inch Nails and Depeche Mode and you guys are all <laughs> together. <laughs> I will come up with something, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll play the blues, you know? <laughs> nice. This Honor the Hall of Fame is a real testament to your commitment to the band, that there are so many moments where you were the one who sort of kept the band going when Tom left. In very rough moments, it was always you that believed in the band and that pushed it, right? Um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, between you and me, I, I always wanted to be in a rock band, you know, from the time I was a kid, junior high school, and I... I was in a lot of different bands and kicked out of a lot of different bands <laughs> and uh, saw a lot of bands that I was a part of come and go. And, uh, you know, to have a great bunch of, of people that you're playing with, I, I, I didn't take it lightly. So as different people, you know, um, especially, you know, kind of leading forces like, like Tommy and Mike um, have come in and out of the band, there's been always this core of players that have committed themselves to it. I mean, when when Tommy left, you know, it was me, Jeff, Tyran, uh, John Hartman, Keith Knudsen, and we were really, or I wasn't uh, John, John at that time. Yeah, John was was still there, um, and we really were committed to moving it forward somehow and uh, we talked about it you know during those stressful moments could we continue it and we went ahead and did it just us you know just me Jeff Tyran John and uh, Keith for a while 
and then we recognize that we can, you know, use another really broad micron to just as a singer and to kind of a, you know, contribute, you know, something to the rhythm section you know, in terms of keyboards, not realizing what a great singer he was. And as soon as he came on board, we recognized that talent was, you know, undeniable. So we did everything we could to incorporate that into what we were doing at the time. Um, and it's just by by luck, I think, you know, that you land in your feet in these instances. It's not really anything you you can forecast or predict. It's just, you know, oh, let's, you know, if we can hold, hold it together long enough to do these gigs that we have, uh, maybe we can rethink it, you know, down the line. And so, you know, it's been one of the, that's kind of been the story of this band, you know, continually uh, rethinking it, reinventing it, recommitting ourselves to it. And, it, it, you know, it, it isn't just me. It's I couldn't do it without, you know, all these other great players. I mean, great writers and players. And, and everybody writes, you know, almost everybody in the band regardless of, of how much actually the output they've they've contributed, everybody almost in the band has written or been a part of writing. And, uh, you know, you, you know when somebody has something good and we just, you know, we, we try to work to, to make it the best we possibly can at any given time. So that was Andy Green with Doobie Brothers founding member Patrick Simmons. Uh, Pat had a great quote to Rolling Stone in the Doobie's long-ago cover story. We were the epitome of the hard-working, hard-living rock and roll band, he said. We used to get plastered all the time, zonkered out of our brains, and pull out all the stops. Every night we were up all night moving, grooving, saying, let's get a beer, give me a toot. I used to drink a lot and do a lot of coke. It was real fast living. We were just walking around like zombies. And that actually helps explain why Tom Johnson, the original singer, as we were saying, kind of collapsed under the pace and ended up sort of uh, vomiting blood and this this is a band who started in their biker days they used to have a gun and knife check at the door <laughs> yeah. in their in their early days and then so yeah so and then as we said uh, michael mcdonald shows up and they become an entirely different band then michael mcdonald uh becomes so famous and su- successful that he has a huge solo career which then opens the door for tom johnston who well, uh, it's not quite okay. how it happened, but <laughs> what happened? Right, what I get wrong, dude? What happened yeah. was they broke up in 1982. They went on a giant farewell right. tour, and in the final weeks, of the tour is when Michael's debut single, which was "I Keep Forgetting," it just took off in a huge way. So the band breaks up, and then five years later, they reform, and that's the Tom Johnson era. And Michael, he was there briefly when they came back, but he was like pushed aside in some ways, and they won the old band back. Michael McDonald was pushed aside, yeah. He, he like, sort of gently said, I think that this should be the old band. And what we should mention is that they're doing a, a really big tour this year with yeah. the two singers. Yeah, with three, if you count Pat. It's it's the first tour that's with Michael in 25 years, though they play with him a lot, and it's many corporate gigs. They play with Michael. If you pay extra at your, your corporate <laughs> gig, they throw in Michael McDonald. I'm not even joking. Important tip out there to those booking your uh, corporate party with the Doobie Brothers. Yes, you, if you pay the extra fee, you might get Michael McDonald. That's true. When you spoke to Michael, he said that he's kind of, uh, he wants to figure out how to play with them and how to, how to kind of 
play keyboards without stepping right. on what everyone else is doing and it all that. It was sort of interesting because when he was in the band back in the day, he was the only keyboard player. And that was a big part of his job was to do harmonies and play keyboard. Now they have a keyboard player and he's joining as a band member again. He'll sing his songs, but he wants to find a way to be incorporated into the band. So if they're playing Blackwater or something, that he can help out and not get in the way of their keyboardist. I thought it was interesting that he said, he said a very Eric Clapton-esque thing, which is that he looks forward to being just part of the band because he thinks that 90% of musicians, and he means people who play instruments, people mm-hmm. don't really want to be showmen. They just want to play the instrument. And it's actually like a great relief when you get to just step back and play in the band, which is definitely how, like a very clapton thing. Yeah, I think of that last CSNY tour in 06, there's a song that Stills would do on the keyboard and Neil would stand in the background and just play guitar on it and he looked so happy to just be in the background and be just playing guitar and not be in the center which is rare it's funny that they uh, toured together with T-Rex yeah it was back in the day of these sort of, of these tours that would happen with so many like various people that would open up and it was the peak of T-Rex in 72 and the Doobies they were just starting out so it's a great meeting of worlds of like glam rock and like biker bar rock. I mean, we were going to make the case for T-Rex. This seems like a good moment. I, yeah. yeah. If anyone's confused and just think they were the bang a gong band, I mean, they were, an ex- they were, Mark Bowen was amazing. They were so key to glam. Rob Sheffield wrote a great piece, uh, you know, maybe explaining them to the people who weren't, uh, weren't hip to their whole thing. But w- what would you say about them? The case is that before Bowie broke, they broke. And like Bolin was a god all over England. And for like 18 months between 71 and 73, they were perfect. They and, some, and, yeah. and both those albums, 71, 72, Electric Warrior and oh. The Slider are both amazing They're albums. They're fantastic records. There's not one weak song on them. It's gorgeous harmonies. He was such a great performer. He was so electric. He was almost Freddie Mercury-like with his power on the crowd. And then his old rival, Bowie, hit and surpassed them in so many ways. And there's people who say Bowie is a vampire who just sucks out the mojo from various people and steals their thing. And in some <laughs> ways, he was doing folk rocky stuff at that time. Then right. T-Rex launched, and all of a sudden, then he's glam too. <laughs> it's funny that Trent Reznor, yeah. who Bowie kind of did a Reznor thing for a while, was also getting in. It's a big year for... It's too bad that yeah. Bowie couldn't have been there because he, he definitely should have inducted... He probably should have inducted both, both of, of them. them. Yeah. yeah, he really should Being have. But- like, thank you for my 70s <laughs> and for my 90s. <laughs> I owe you two a lot of gratitude. The way that the guitars are set up on T-Rex albums and the awesome kind of stereo stuff that goes on with the rhythm guitar parts, it's like, hmm, they, that does kind of uh, then literally show up on Bowie albums. Oh, yeah. It was one of his templates. But it it's a mistake, of course, to see it just as that. Those albums are perfect in their own right. Oh, and they've I inspired all sorts of people, even up to, you know, Kesha. They, yeah. they were totally classic rock band. But it was so brief is the problem they faced that post Ziggy Stardust, they tried to do their own rock opera and it was terrible and he started drinking a lot and it just ended very quickly. He dies in a car crash in 77. He was 28 or something. I mean, it was just awful what happened. Right. And as Rob pointed out, Mark Bowen had the, the slash 
Top Hat and Curls way before Slash. <laughs> yes. Even something like Raspberry Beret or Cream by Prince sounds like them. They're, they're all over the place. They're a very important band. It's great that they're getting in. And uh, I'm, I'm very curious who's going to perform for them and who's going to duck them. That's a tricky kind of thing. I hope they are done justice. Another, you know, it's it's wonderful to see Biggie in. Tupac got in first. Uh, yep. I think, but he started first. Yes. No, I know. It's, it's, it is funny, though. It's a funny thing for uh, the feud to be continuing on. <laughs> I'm sure n- nothing that was on either of their minds during their lives. That's one thing. I was imagining yeah. Biggie being told he was getting into the Rock and Roll of Fame and, and just his reaction. It, it probably would have been, you know, well, happy. Be, sure, know. Yeah, or Biggie. Because back then, it was this Waldorf story event that was honoring, like, Fleetwood Mac and Led Zeppelin and stuff. I mean... Yeah, just uh, time passes quickly. But it is bizarre. I mean, certainly Biggie deserves to be in by any measure. I think, you know, some people have pointed out that it's bizarre. They're they're jumping over a lot of people in rap. I mean, a lot of people. Yeah. And one really egregious one is LL Cool J, who just can't seem to get in. And yeah. I think that's just because the voters don't understand his importance. Right. They've put him on the ballot. They've put Bombada on the ballot. They've put Eric B. and Rakim on the ballot. And with LL, it's been many, many ballots he does not get in. I think what's happened is a lot of his early work you never hear anymore. It's never in the radio. You you never hear it. He's been reduced to almost just Mama Said Knock You Out and his second career as a TV star. And, and by the way, if that was his entire career, yeah. he should still get in <laughs> just like Benny King got in for Stand By Me. Right. It's, you know, come on. It's But they don't understand what LL did and how important he was no. to, to break, breaking it's rap. That, there's not a lot of places these days in which you hear classic rap that's it's not in the radio well, that's why much. ll started a station right here on sirius right no radio. and it's yeah, awesome yeah. but on non-satellite radio you do not hear those songs so it's a shame and and like i was saying about going back to induct all the rock people who still deserve to get in even as you move forward it's the same thing they're gonna need to take a look at all the people in between run dmc and biggie who, well, yeah. who haven't gotten in it's nuts right then they bring the beastie boys and it becomes Anderson. so selective it, yeah they be, because it, i think initially it was this idea of who in rap who in hip-hop is kind of rock and roll whatever the hell that means and it's clear that run dmc are kind of rock and roll and public enemy are kind of rock and roll but eventually i think you have to divorce yourself from that and just be like who's great in rap while rap be uncomfortable in a few years if they bring in eminem his first year and he gets hit like prior to all these other people that influenced him in a big way Right, that's nuts, and that's what they're going to have to avoid. But yeah. do you know what I mean? They have they need to stop thinking like Biggie's rock and roll because he died young, and because yeah. you know it, because the subject matter of his lyrics. But you know, LL isn't because he did "I Need Love." It's like yeah, it's like come crazy. On, like like why is Neil Diamond rock and roll? You know, like <laughs> it starts to be insane. And I sort of understand the lame idea they're going for is like some people have a rock and roll like it's, it's like drake isn't as rock and roll as future right, or whatever where, but, but yeah. this starts to be a deranged criteria yeah. i think it's for country too that it's like they've decided johnny cash is a rock star but not willie nelson and it's what criteria is that right it's actually what you would call rockist is what it is yes so you're listening to rolling stone music now i'm in the studio with andy green we have a couple minutes left we're talking about the rock and roll hall of fame it's an interesting year uh whitney houston is in which it's interesting everything has changed to the point where that it basically makes sense i think it, it might have seemed nuts to people a little while ago yeah i mean if you bring in madonna you're bringing these people it makes perfect sense i view her as as a rock star of sorts horrendously we were talking about the kind of corny idea of some people being rock and roll and some people not yeah horrendously her addictions and her her passing 
I think in some people's eyes make her more rock and roll. And I think that's yeah, a very destructive way of crazy. thinking. But you know that that is a thing, like 100%. You know, it kind of makes her, she was a messed up she badass. She lived know? a life. She sure did. Um, oh. But it, there was nothing cool about it and it ruined her voice. And there's nothing, yeah, I, I, I would hope that she could get in without all that. Yeah. It, it didn't add anything to, but you know, she had a lot of challenges. She was seen as insufficiently, she was seen as kind of like a too white artist by a lot of R&B fans. Yeah. She, she was caught in a weird place. So I, I hope this would have meant something to her. My yeah. only interaction with her was she once uh, glared at me when I was interviewing Wyclef yeah. uh, in his studio. And I, as I was leaving, she was coming in to work with him and she yeah. knew I was a member of the press. So oh, she, she, was not, she was not happy to see me. But it was an honor to be, to yeah. be glared at by, uh, you know, by Whitney Houston. In that documentary they put out about a year or two ago, it's so sad to watch her downfall and watch her last tour where she's trying to sing I'll Always Love You and can't hit any of the notes. And it's just... One, it's just one of the great voices of all time, just shattered. It's, and again, I I hope that didn't get her any votes, but you know yeah. it did. You know it did. I and, hope cause, not. Because that's how people think, you know, and unfortunately, which is it's sick, yeah. and uh, people should get over it. But it's that it's that corny idea of rock and roll. It's you know, it's like Amy Winehouse will get in in one second, the moment she's eligible, she will zoom in. Well, that's a long time. From yes, now. it <laughs> is a long time. It's not as long as you think. <laughs> but that was like that first album was like it was like oh three or something. Yeah, so it's, so, you know, it's uh, not that long from now, right, my man. Okay. Yeah, that's it's, fair it's point. It's about eight years away, right? So that's uh, bananas. Yeah. But yeah. That's, that's how it works. Is Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is one of those inescapable reminders of the passage of time. It's, it's brutal sometimes what turns out to be 25 years ago. It'll be really weird when it gets to the early aughts and it's like the strokes and stuff. That's like sheer classic rock. Well, that's part of the thing is once it, around 2026. yeah. Uh, that's when you start hitting the end of eligible rock acts because there just were not that many rock acts up until, you know, certainly around 05, 06 is when you just start hitting the wall. There's just, if right. I'm, I'm talking about rock, rock, like yeah. people with guitars, that's when it, the thing is going to really divorce itself but from any idea you, of rock and roll. But you go back and get Sonic Youth and the replacements and Black Flag sure, and that all will, the 80s. Yes, There's so much 80s but, to get to. But that will not be the main focus. The main focus will be the the stars of the day, which will be rappers and other genres. And then they'll start talking about like Fatboy Slim or, you know, like, a, <laughs> you know, a, per, perhaps not literally Fatboy Slim, but, you know, there will be people, but, someone will say the prodigy should be in. I mean, it's, it's, it's sure. just going to go nuts. But they'll bring in Kanye. That'll always be stuff they could do. They have decades to go, I think, and be okay. Yes, they'll be okay, but it will no longer be based around rock bands. That's no. for sure. That, that is going to happen. Yeah. So, so I think they're they're just looking since it's uh, 2020. They're, they're just you know, and that's only six years away. That's why they're that's why they're doing this. We're deep into a new century, and it's going to have to evolve like uh, all institutions. So that's been our show. I'm Brian Hyatt. I was in the studio with Andy Green. We'll be back next week with another episode of Rolling Stone Music Now here on Sirius XM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a nice review on iTunes. It's always greatly appreciated. Or just click some stars. You don't have to write anything. That I don't want to give you a homework assignment. Just, just click the thing. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will definitely see you next week.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.